Hey Liz, mute buttons on the lower right. Yo, what's up? Liz, thank you for joining us all the way from the from the East Coast. <laughs> I'm actually in Texas right now, not in New York. Oh, oh shit! Sorry, that's right. You're you're actually at heart a Texan. You live in Austin. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I divide my time between two like incredibly liberal cities, so I'm just like constantly annoyed by everything on all ends. Um, I mean, given you're a libertarian, um, other than Somalia, where could you actually go to actually live the libertarian dream? I mean, I think you're living it in Reno, right? Like that's that's the concept. <laughs> you're a secret libertarian, and I know I'll convince you someday. I, you know, I'm a man of many faces, I guess you could say, and a cultural chameleon. And I'm happy to go a little Mad Max when when I'm in Reno, but not but not otherwise. Um, well, thank you for joining me. I think people are people are flitting in. I, so you 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 you've been on Colin before, so you know how this works, Liz, right? Or you've been on Clubhouse, I assume as well. I've been on before. Clubhouse a ton, but Colin is actually new to me, so it's kind of fun seeing like the new trendy thing. You're like teaching the. I'm like basically Gen Z, or at least a young millennial, and here you are, Antonio, teaching me how to do this. Uh, we're, we're getting the zoomers up to speed. Um, yeah, so this is like, a be- this is like, a, I, I wouldn't maybe say it too late. Let me see who's in the audience. It's kind of like a slightly better UX on a clubhouse type experience. It's live social audio that said it will be archived. And so you can actually share this later. So it does have elements of a podcast as well. Um, so, and then usually how this works is I have a guest on, there's obviously a theme. It looks like we've already got a caller who wants to ask some questions. I usually leave those towards the end. Um, but Given that in this case, you don't necessarily have some like big meaty theme or often it's authors with books. It's just you and I rapping about this bizarre experience we had last week. I guess we can start more or less. I was hoping to actually publish a pull request piece about it this morning. I didn't quite get there, but um, I do have some reflections on what we experienced. But I is, does that sound OK, Liz? Absolutely. Let's get started with your reflections. I'm really curious because I would expect we have a lot of similar reflections, uh, one of which is just like, this was sort of like a an wild, like bizarre and like totally carefree experience in a lot of ways. Like it was just absolutely wild to be sort of in trapped in the same, tra- like delightfully trapped in the same space with like 300-ish, 400-ish people for this amount of time. It was really cool. All of whom got COVID after the fact, but that, that's a separate <laughs> thing. We'll, we'll get, we'll get, we'll, well, my we'll get to that in a second. My, my friend um, Andy was commenting that it was like very much like a summer camp vibe. Uh, and I totally agree with that. It's like if summer camp were like a hundred times more glamorous, maybe a thousand right. times more glamorous. Right. It was, it was like nerd burning man in Miami's most expensive and tasteful hotel. It's basically what it was. And it um, wasn't even that nerdy. Like I must say, I saw some like incredible like designer clothing. Like the, the interesting thing was that nobody knew the dress code in advance. So like Kat Rosenfield right. and I were messaging about this like in the, the lead up. But then the interesting thing was it created this like spontaneous order of just like wild and cool and creative dressing, which I know it just seems like an odd aesthetic sort of thing to, to point out. But it really like there was that sort of component to it throughout the entire time of like nobody could quite figure out the vibe Nobody knew it in advance. And so we were able to be really free to like create it as we, as we went along. Yeah. I think Miami also makes you sort of, uh, you know, kind of dud things up a bit. I, I actually took like a fancy, like I, as a male, I can't really accessorize. I can't really buy jewelry. I refuse to do it perhaps because I'm beholden to traditional gender roles. And so I, I just brought um, a somewhat fancy looking watch. That was my only concession to fashion in the, in the, in the entire thing. But you are I right, love that you're are... being modest now. You're like, you're like not mentioning the type of watch, but you already tweeted it out. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Um, yeah, this, this, this is a, yeah, this is, this is a garden with many pads here. Liz. Um, so, but yeah, I mean the, the weird thing about, I mean, aside from like the fancy, the weird thing about the conference, right. And the weirdness started, this is how I opened the piece, started on the fucking flight over there. I'm like, I, a, I was, I didn't know what, whether to go or not. 
like both baby mama and girlfriend were swearing to treat me like a leper as, as soon as I got back because of the, the whole COVID risk. But I'm like, ah, the FOMO's too big. I have to go. So I go, I tweet about it. And then like a reply guy says, oh, by the way, look behind you. I'm behind you on the plane. And I look behind me and it's like Michael Schellenberger who wrote San Francisco, who's been on the show. It's Camille Foster, who does the Fifth Column podcast, whose show I've been on. Like Cyan Bannister walked by. It was this bizarre thing. Like it wasn't a nightmare, obviously, because it was a pleasant experience. But it's like one of these dreams you have where suddenly all the people you know from different contexts are like in one room or something. And that's what this felt like. Then that flight became the entire conference, like literally all the mutual follows. I mean, you and me, for example, who had never met in person, somehow all in the same room because we all know Mike Salon and Founders Fund or whatever else. Right. Was that was that your feeling? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was actually kind of interesting because you were tweeting about this, about the San Francisco flight to Miami. And I was sort of wondering, okay, on my Austin, because I was in New Austin at the time, not New York. And I was sort of wondering, you know, how much how much purchase should we give the idea that, you know, Austin is sort of the Silicon Hills, this next Silicon Valley. And I mean, I know Luke Nosek was on my flight. Um, he was on SpaceX's board and, and you know, PayPal Mafia, a really interesting and cool career we chatted for a little bit uh, at Hereticon. But he was the only one that I recognized that was on my flight from Austin to Miami. And so I was sort of like, okay, well, this is sort of odd that it's not, you know, as much of a love fest as what you COVID lepers experienced uh, right. going from San Francisco to Miami. Yeah, mine was totally a nerd bird. By the way, as a total, as a total plug, Luke Nozick, is going to be in a future pro request on uh, Christ. When is it? Middle of Feb with some of the other PayPal founders to review the book that just came out about PayPal. As a, as a total side note. Oh, some that'll of the be interesting. People listening it. Yeah, yeah, that'll 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 definitely be that'll definitely be interesting. Um, so yeah, no, it's, again, it's it's funny it's funny to have your Twitter mutuals in one room. And then the other thing that I also remarked about in my post is like Twitter micro celebrity is weird, right? And and, and by micro celebrity, <laughs> I mean. You're very well known to like a micro audience of some sort, right? As as much of a celebrity as anybody else. But of course, you're, you're totally out, unknown outside of it, right? And and so it's this bizarre thing where where you you know you introduce yourself and you don't quite know how much background to give or not because like in your audience, like you don't have to give any. I'm just oh so and so maybe chaos monkey or something. And everything else, it's like how do you even explain how you sustain your life, right? Because it's not just to normal people. It's like wait, what do you mean you just spend a lot of time on Twitter? How does how does that function? Well, you know, there's this thing called newsletters. There's this thing called podcasting. There's this thing called a fellowship. Um, so anyhow, it was just it was strange to be in that milieu again in in in, in real life. Um, yeah. Well, I think tricky. the other thing that was interesting, like there are a few people who sort of like operate at this fascinating intersection between tech world and media world. Like I'm thinking of you. Yeah. I'm thinking of Camille Foster. You know, yeah. a few people can sort of operate very cleanly and easily within both spaces and sort of you know have have you know, tried on different hats over the course of their careers and, and worn them quite successfully. But there was an interesting thing that I was sort of thinking about because I, you know, hung out a lot with Jesse Single and with Kat Rosenfield and with Andy Mills and Robbie Suave and, and various other sort of journalists in my little cohort there. And it was it was super interesting. Matt Bowl, I shouldn't forget him. You know, it was really interesting us sort of attempting to suss out, okay, well, there's this whole other world out there, which is VC world. And we're all fascinated and intrigued by it. And Mike Solana is part of it. And he's the reason why we're all here. But like, there's a very, um, it was just fascinating sort of being flies on the wall and observing some of these differences between these worlds. And I imagine, you know, it was really interesting for people like you and Camille who straddle these two different worlds all at once. Can I just pause it for a second? You act, So you pronounced Robbie's last name, who's the editor of Reason, <laughs> su Suave. Is that, is yeah, that right? Yeah, Suave. That, mm -hmm. So it's like Rico Suave. It's like, like Suave, <laughs> like soft and span. Like, that's actually how you pronounce it. Okay. Absolutely. I thought he'd go yeah. for the French thing and suave or something. No, no, no. It's, it's <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
Um, no, I think it was it was fun and interesting. Like, I'm I'm so glad that Robbie and I were both there. Uh, in part because Robbie just released his his book, uh, Tech Panic. And has been covering issues related to Section 230 and antitrust law um, and, and stuff related to basically all these ultra political pushes to attempt to break up big tech companies. And I think it was just really interesting to, you know, spend a little bit more time, uh, a little bit less time in the policy and politics space and more time in like, OK, well, you know, we're, we're fighting for these companies to have much more freedom to, to do what they want to do. And like, what are the interesting things that they're doing with that freedom? Uh, so yeah. I think Robbie had some really good takeaways too. Yeah, you, you know what? One thing they're doing with this freedom—we've got Mark Andreessen and Jack Dorsey trolling each other and one-upping each other, quoting. I don't know if you saw the little war that broke out today. Um, no, what happened? What went down? Oh, who, who was right? <laughs> it, it's funny because I'm in a policy group with a bunch of DC policy wonks, and I just mm-hmm. dropped in. It's like, well, you people are seriously discussing the privacy implications and everything in these very serious tones. The people who actually make the magic happen are sitting there, like, trolling each other like little children. Um, <laughs> and so, um, it, I mean, I, just go to Mark Andreessen's thing. I, you know, I, I won't even attempt to summarize it here. But, it, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's it's not what you think billionaires should be doing with their time, put it that way. Although maybe maybe it is. Maybe, in fact, this is part of the glories of social media that I'm sure Robbie gets into in his book, is that you actually get to see the sort of semi-frivolous... Um, you know, cat fighting of, uh, you know, two powerful Silicon Valley people. I think um, it's somewhat comforting. It's like this cat fighting is this great equalizer in a sense. Right. The fact that Elon, for example, who's like the most empowered superhuman you've ever seen or met, right. And has done like three incredible things, still waste time ship posting on Twitter is to me, you know, a very humanizing touch. I would have to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, interesting. By the way, Robbie, has to be the nicest guy I've ever met and just looks incredibly respectable. You know, he looks like an investment banker at JP Morgan covering telecoms or something. He does not look like <laughs> what I was expecting. I expect the libertarian to be, well, you know, maybe a little bit like you, Liz, covered in tattoos, <laughs> piercing, some weird shit. Like, just, I expect him to be basically constantly like, doing heroin or illegal narcotics, selling hey, organs for Bitcoin, I firing was, guns in the air, and generally being I was not constantly total... doing heroin. Don't tell no. anybody that. Jesus okay. Christ. Okay. You, you did offer me weird looking <laughs> pills, I have to say. <laughs> Which... uh, I, I, I feel like it, we should have a, a, a code of silence, a sort of omerta okay. surrounding what substances were or were not consumed at... Um, at Hereticon, though I do, I must say that I, my little clique of, of hot tub journalists, uh, yeah. we, we always managed to seek out hot tubs at Penthouse Party on the last night where you and I, we hardly got to hang out at all. But um, yeah. my little crew of journalists, we got in that hot tub. I think we accidentally scared a bunch of VCs off. Um, it was all Jesse Single's fault. I'm pretty sure he like did a, a some kind of weird dive into the hot tub and scared everybody. But I think that that's what protected us from getting Heretic COVID. Uh, yeah, well, I have to say, I mean, that little crew scared me off too it's like seven <laughs> dudes in their boxers in a hot tub where there wasn't a lot of room and it's like yeah no thanks like yeah no i can hey i, can I was in this. there too i'm not a dude i was not wearing boxers that i can recall um but and and i know jesse singles uh, girlfriend carmen was also there and she was an absolute hoot uh so pretty sure we just like very much scared everybody off however no let's get to the meat of this so there were lots of parties etc nobody wants to hear us yeah. talk about hot tubs and penthouses um you know, but but what did you think of like what were you expecting? What was the sort of reality versus expectations here going into it? I didn't expect anything because Mike didn't even send a schedule until like two days before the thing happened. So I had literally <laughs> no idea what like what is even the format? Like what the fuck is even going on in this thing? And so, um, you know, it's weird because I usually go to conferences and then I just I just never go to a session because I just, I just can't even be bothered to get up. And then 
you know, things get a little boozy. You wake up groggy at 10. It's like, oh, fuck, who do I really want to go see this thing? In this case, it was better because a lot of the sessions I thought actually were interesting. And I did manage to make a few of them, although I missed a few I, I wish I had gone to. Um, but um, no, it, yeah, it was good. Like you, like you said, it, it kind of did feel a little like summer camp. It, it did feel mm-hmm. a little bit like that. Well, um, it felt like yeah. it really, conference feels like um, the wrong word, like a word that's ill-suited to describe what this was, because it really, more than anything, feels like sort of a three and a half day long, four day long party with truly just like it fascinating, like internet micro celebs. Um, right. And so conference, like, like on one hand, it was actually like pretty light on programming with a lot of time right. built in for hangovers. So like stuff didn't right. really start until like one right. most days. Right. Um, I found the Diana Fleischman uh, eugenics talk yeah. the most fascinating one. When, and they really, I think that was the first session or one of the early yeah. ones. And so they really started off super strong there on, on main stage stuff. Yeah, no, that, so that, it's funny, I have a passage on that in the piece too. I mean, I think that the, the very first one was Ayla's one, which mm-hmm. so, so blew my mind. I DM'd her at four in the morning, kind of half wasted on, on champagne to ask her for, um, to ask her for an interview, which turned into a slightly awkward conversation that involved dollar signs. But in any case, um, it's, but after that one at one o'clock, I think there was the Fleischman one you mentioned, which was about the completely anodyne and safe topic of eugenics. well i think the thing that she did so the thing that i really appreciated about this was because you know it is a a conference or a party composed of lots and lots of provocateurs and of course the the title of the session was very provocatively named but i thought it was really interesting for fleischman to sort of explore this continuum of ways that public policy attempts to um you know sort out and uh be crafted around quote unquote desirable and undesirable traits. And there are all kinds of interesting areas where we have moral intuitions, but you know, where they exist on much more of a spectrum than we really admit. Like one thing that I think about a lot, um, just because, you know, we're already talking about all the, the heretical things here. But one thing that I'm always fascinated by is like, uh, aborting fetuses based off of down syndrome status or based off of genetic abnormalities of any sort. Uh, and that's just sort of an interesting thing that like, lots and lots of countries allow and lots of people even sort of carve out some amount of like moral space for for thinking that that's a permissible thing to do to alleviate what they see as hardship later on. And I I really just appreciate sort of attempting to place that on a continuum of like uh, ways that public policy allows or disallows people to treat people differently based off of quote unquote desirable traits. Um, But it was a very serious, sober treatment of all this. And she just did such a good job walking people into it, talking first about laws against incest, which was such a like attention grabbing hook there. Right. I mean, specifically, right. Well, so so I I thought she was very funny, although it's funny because she wasn't even trying to be funny. She was doing it all very deadpan, but it came off as very humorous. And then she started with the anecdote that I think you're referring to, which I forget their names. Basically, it's a German couple. And she doesn't quite tell you what's going on to begin with. Well, so I I called it. I leaned over to Jesse or to Carmen and I was like, it's incest. It's incest. And I think they thought right. I was joking, but I totally was right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a German couple that had a number of children, uh, a number of them with genetic abnormalities. And at some point, the German state puts them in jail. <laughs> and, you know, it, 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 and again, that I think is one element of eugenics that I think we all agree on, right? By the broadest definition really? of eugenics. Uh, well, <laughs> no, tell me, Liz, tell me a little bit about incest. Go ahead. No, I mean, I don't know if I have, I, I don't know if I have particular feelings, but I do think it's crazy that it's just an odd thing for the state to prohibit. And also states have like, you know, different countries have different policies yeah. on what types of uh, incest they prohibit. Like some prohibit first cousin marriage, some prohibit just sibling marriage. Like, I mean, I'm not, 
I don't think that this is the the right or good or like appropriate way to order a society. But I do think it's fascinating that like, you know, governments draw different lines in different positions. And I guess a lot of the concept is to attempt to protect uh, the offspring that would result with various genetic abnormalities from being created at all. But one of the things that I find really interesting is like, you know, what authority does the state have to protect people from themselves and from, you know, creating kids with somebody? And especially like, why is it that we use marriage as this sort of heuristic to determine that, Um, you know, these people could still have sex with each other. (laughs) I'm not advocating for any of this. Do not have sex with your cousins, um, regardless of whether they're first cousins or second cousins. But it's just to me, it's a really interesting thing. And and I I appreciated the degree to which Fleischman was like, hey, she actually drew the examples of Germany and Israel as um, countries that treat eugenics related issues very differently based off of their past, where Israel's actually much more lax about a lot of things and Germany's very strict uh, for pretty obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah, no, that's one of the examples. I mean, in the Israeli case, for those who aren't kind of drawing the dotted line, um, uh, the problem is that Ashkenazi Jews historically have been relatively inbred, right? Because cousin mm-hmm. marriage actually used to be fairly common in, in Jewish families. And so uh, things like Tay-Sachs disease, which are very debilitating congenital disease, um, I included a link actually in my piece. There's actually a foundation that voluntarily does testing for Orthodox couples and often in the in the sort of arranged, semi-arranged marriage process of a lot of, uh, you know, Jewish pair bonding, um, they a genetic test actually precedes anything before you even go on the first date, just to make sure that <laughs> it could even happen. In which subcultures is this the case? Like, is this like Orthodox communities within yeah. Israel or what about in well, Orthodox communities in the U.S.? Well, so so Ashkenazi Jews, by which I mean Jews of largely European origin, gen- generally do genetic screening in general, right? Like that, like this mm-hmm. is a medical thing, you should do it. But then as a cultural thing, it's given the fact that many Orthodox Jews have, I don't know if I call them arranged marriages, but, you know, kind of you know, matchmakers who kind of arrange potential matches, given that it's kind of, part of the culture, then that genetic screening is included as part of that matchmaking process. Typically. I have a weird question um, that's yeah. sort of somewhat related. Do you think, and I don't know how I think about this at all, do you think that um, that doing this type of genetic testing before, like in other non-matchmaker-made relationships would be like a societal boon or like a, a weird thing to do? Like, do you think there would be lots of benefits to this? And like, at what stage in non-matchmaker relationships, would it be interesting or appropriate or helpful to do this? Do you ever think about that? Yeah, well, I guess it depends on what you're thinking about positive or negative eugenics. In other words, are we just trying to avoid things that are considered obvious negatives, like stay down syndrome, or are you actually trying to optimize your offspring along some dimension that you, for whatever reason, you think is ideal? Well, um, I mean, I think I think the like plausible case, and I don't really know that much about this, but I think the the most plausible case would be that some amount of genetic testing would be useful in terms of lopping off especially bad outcomes, where if you know you have a you know you're a really high risk for something, and your potential mate or spouse does is is at really high risk as well. There's a sense that like you know later heartache and um, trouble with offspring can be avoided in that manner. But it also just sort of, sort of seems like a strange, like dystopian screening process. Like we already do so much filtering at various stages of dating, just in terms of like personality. I'm like, you know, is the person, did the person go to the same types of schools that we went to? Do they live in the same types of neighborhoods? Like that type of thing. And so we already do so much filtering, which I find to be like, you know, there's a pragmatic case for it, but it's, you know, kind of, uh, it, it reduces some of the, the um, romantic sort of strains in our society like i don't know it's it's something that i'm always really really divided on about how much filtering is appropriate or desirable yeah i mean assortative mating is is a huge thing right yeah (laughs) the fact that the fact that you've got people of the same elite meritocratic background who tend to pair bond 
because of that is very different than the world that used to exist in which you'd marry the local neighborhood boy or girl or whatever. And things were a little bit less intentional or they were optimized along certain dimensions of religion or ethnicity or region rather well, than proximity was a huge deciding right. factor. And now it's like socioeconomic right. status and right. like, honestly, college, like what book caliber yes. of college you went to is the sort of sort of mating thing. There's also right. one thing that I constantly think about with like a lot of the accelerationist discourse surrounding like depth of cities and like have, you know, do agglomeration effects still exist in the future is like, how does this affect a sort of meeting? And like, how will this change people's, sort of like mating and pairing practices. Like, I just have no idea what that world will look like, but it seems like that's a huge reason why it's useful for people in their mid twenties and late twenties to be in New York or in LA or whatever. Yeah. No, I I know of at least one person who's moving to New York just to get the husband shot basically. (laughs) Um, But yeah. Yeah. So, and then, so one last comment, I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the screening, you know, she cited the example, for example, it's funny, the Atlantic has a great piece on it. You know, countries like Denmark and Iceland have, quote unquote, eradicated Down syndrome. Mostly oh, I through... hate those headlines so much. I just find them to be such like shitty newspeak. It's just not true. Right. Well, right. That's definitely one take on it. Right. They're not eradicating <laughs> it. They're engaging in selective abortion and that then yeah. just, those people aren't being born. Um, and uh, anyhow, yes, there's a lot of moral qualms there. But again, I, I, to, to Fleischmann's greater point, this is a form of eugenics, right? In the sense that you're trying to skew the next generation along some genetic dimension. Um, and um, yeah. Uh, and so the title of the talk, I don't think we mentioned it, was you're probably a, a eugenicist was the sort of clickbaity title of the thing. Um, and I, I Fleischmann's, the talk was so great because you kind of landed at a point where you're like, yeah, I guess, I guess I am. <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of pop to it at the end. Well, the thing the, that yeah. I found really interesting about it, because she made that point a few times and I, you know, would, probably be in the top five-ish percent or, you know, of, of ultra pro-life people in that room. I don't really know what the breakdown is or what it tends to look like in Silicon Valley or among this sort of like tech set. But I was sort of thinking as she was making this case that like, for those of us who oppose almost all forms of abortion, or maybe all forms of abortion, you know, there aren't a lot of eugenics related arguments that are complaining. But then that really got me thinking about like, I don't know my position on like gene editing and stuff like that. I feel actually very like squeamish about that type of thing which is odd for a libertarian with like basically no disgust mechanism but i think like for religious people and ultra pro-life people they're she really really got me thinking uh and i i didn't feel like that much of a eugenicist at the end of it so really i'm morally superior to you i think antonio wait hold on you're a pro-life <laughs> libertarian I, that, yeah. that's like that, inter- that, in- that intersection or that Venn diagram doesn't exist. It's just you standing there, Liz. How many, how many, <laughs> how many pro-life libertarians are there? I, just, this... I mean, there's actually a decent number. I think they're not, um, there, there's a decent number. I think they oftentimes are somewhat quieter about, uh, their, I, I would say there's not a clear public policy consensus. And so lots of libertarians share a, a moral aversion and a belief that abortion is wrong. But I think a lot of them really, really struggle to formulate a sort of hypothesis um, or, or a, a specific solution in terms of how we go from a society that currently allows uh, a pretty high degree of abortion, you know, a decent number of abortions per year, to a society that disallows that, especially without, um, you know, perpetrating some of the ills of like criminalizing things. You know, we've seen all of the ills with, of that with the drug war and with very various other areas where like when you crack down on something, that doesn't mean that it goes away. We know that laws are sort of these like very, very blunt tools that we attempt to use to achieve outcomes. And I think libertarians are very wary of, you know, those like existing public policy solutions that are advocated by a lot of the pro-life conservative side. I think a lot of libertarians have a lot of distaste for them for good reason. 
Uh, but I think I come out on, you know, a little bit more stronger on the side of using state power to eliminate abortion. Wait, so just one second. Let's not <laughs> this is an entire different here. thing. Were, and were, were, you raised, were you raised religious, Liz? Uh, yes, I was raised religious. I was raised Catholic and then um, would maintain my prolifery uh, when I became an atheist. And then I'm now back on the religion flow to a significant degree, but not with a clear denominational home. And you cannot convert me. Don't use this as an opportunity, though I know that's not really a thing in, in Judaism. Um, you know, well, depends how far back you go, but you're right that these days uh, proselytizing is not really a thing. Um, although it, that, that Catholic to Jewish conversion is a path I took. So interesting. So you're a Catholic libertarian. Christ, that's amazing. Well, okay. I wouldn't um, really fully identify as Catholic now, but that's definitely the sort of like theological tradition that I was raised in. Huh. But I did okay, go to well, church today, yeah. like a Catholic church. So like, I guess maybe in a sense, maybe like you're, maybe I'm telling on myself. Wow. Man, <laughs> interesting. Okay. So, um, getting back it to really the conversation, which is my, my pro- it reduces my street cred so much. So like, you can't spread this around. Okay. Well, you know, we're not exactly hiding under a rock as we're talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, huh. Okay. So yeah. So what, what other sessions? Oh, I guess the headliner thing was like the teal Tyler Cohen thing, which I have to say I was slightly underwhelmed by. Um, what, what were you that. underwhelmed by about it? I guess I felt, uh, I don't, I'm a big Tyler Cohen fan. For those who aren't familiar, he, he has a podcast called Conversations with Tyler. I suspect the overlap between my audience and his is probably pretty high, so I don't have to explain his background too much. But, you know, he, he has this, like, ruthless intellect, right? And he just, he basically assaults his, his guests with this sort of machine gun rat-a-tat salvo of questions, kind of unrelated. And, you know, some of the smartest people in the world have just withered <laughs> under this, this barrage. And then he somehow didn't do that with Peter. I guess maybe, you know, he wasn't trying to be a bad guest. Like, you know, t- Peter, in some sense, was the grand host of this thing, really. And so, you know, they had an interesting conversation and back and forth. And if I recall correctly, I actually recorded some of it. Um, it was about the apocalypse and the Antichrist. And, and Peter, who's who's quite wont to give sort of Christian uh, allusions, mentioned how the apocalypse is always signaled by an Antichrist figure, um, which I thought was was interesting. And I, I believe he, didn't he flag Greta Thunberg as the, as the Antichrist? <laughs> I'm not making that up. There was definitely some shitting on Greta Thunberg on the main stage, which felt so appropriate right. for this event. Right. Yes, that's right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I talked to Peter private. So, I, you know, I talked to Peter privately later. I think, you know, one of the best things about the conference is obviously it was a private conversation, which are hard to share, mm-hmm. particularly under the, the terms of the conference. We're not supposed to publicize conversations without yeah. your permission. So, I mean, um, I chatted with him a little bit, and I think you were you were next to me for a little bit there. We had a really nice, interesting, long discussion with him, and I, I feel as though you know, journalistically, that is off the record uh, type stuff. But it was it right. was fascinating, and I thought the the intimacy of this sort of conferency party thing was really, really um, super interesting and cool. One thing I mentioned, Liz, and I think you can feel a little proud about this, is that you and the Reason crowd, as far as I can tell, were the only journalists invited to the thing. Like, no other uh, journalists were invited. Well, I mean, so, no. So it was, like, me, Robbie, Jesse Single, who does Blocked right. and Reported, yeah. Andy Mills, yeah. who works for Barry Weiss's right. um, podcast, informally of the New York Times, and then Melissa Chen. She's a journalist, right? Uh, she writes for The Spectator, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then Kat Rosenfield, um, right. who sometimes... Well, so Kat and Jesse both sometimes freelance for Reason. And right. then... Was that it? I guess you, you're a journalist. I guess so, yeah. But that's it. It was like five of us. Yeah. 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 
It was wild. I mean, I think that was a that was an interesting component of it. I'm I'm glad that there wasn't. I I am curious about how much self censorship happened among the sort of like tech crowd by by nature of us being there versus if we hadn't been there at all. Oh, I don't think so. I, I don't. You I don't, don't think know. so? No, no, because yeah, I I have, I have a hard time believing it. I I think if you know Kevin Roos or Charlie Warzel, the New York Times had been there, I think there'd be would have been a lot of it. It's funny. <laughs> At the National Conservative Conference that I went to in last October, and I'm still kind of working on a piece on the. I officially was there on a journalist badge because I was reporting for Tablet, and they like Yoram, the organizer, wouldn't let the journalist like sit at the actual dinner table. There was like oh a little God. journalist dog pound that you're supposed to sit there and kind of like suddenly sort of just sit there, which of course I totally ignored and would sit at dinner anyhow. But it, it, it but most of the journalists did not do that. They actually did sit in their little box, um, and so I, I don't know how you would be able to pull off this conference with journalists without a dog pound, to be honest, it just wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. No, that would have been a very strange dynamic. Um, It was, it was very good that I think we were more more incorporated. I say in a very self-interested manner, what were, so I'm curious, one of the things, there were a few things that I picked up on and it's hard to extrapolate because, you know, there were so many different discrete individual conversations with all kinds of interesting people, but there were a few sort of prevailing themes or hypotheses that I sort of developed from this. Um, and I want to like honor people's sort of the, the journalistic agreement of like things being on background. But um, I'm curious, like what were some big picture themes that you picked up from conversations at this conference? And then I can sort of want to compare notes as to like what I picked up. Themes. Um... Like one thing I'm thinking of is I was actually surprised by the sort of like anarcho trad pro natalist contingent. Like I was really intrigued by the degree to which, like, I sort of thought that that wasn't something that would get very much airtime in private conversation. Um, and maybe this is because, like, I am a woman with a womb and I'm, like, of childbearing age and seem generally f- relatively fertile. Um, and so people specifically talk about that type of thing around me. But I was sort of intrigued by the amount of discussion that this got from this crowd, which you wouldn't, it didn't feel like an intuitive fit to me. Yeah, I mean, reaction, yeah, I mean, reactionary politics is the new revolution. I mean, being tried is the new being cool right i mean there was a fucking wedding in the middle of it liz Delian, <laughs> know, right? out of nowhere just announced oh by the way we're getting married and so there was for those who don't know uh or didn't see the tweets but it did get tweeted out delian who started this whole miami as a tech thing by getting memed by mayor suarez um just decided he's gonna get married and so i i think nadia just randomly found a wedding dress it was very shotgun although not necessarily shotgun in that way um and they just got <laughs> married and i guess they zoomed in uh, a minister from Utah, which God bless the Mormons. It's the only state that allows a virtual presence to count as like an officiating presence. And so oh it was gosh. an actual official marriage, or that's the story I heard at least. That's um, wild. No, I, I did not attend the wedding because I was getting pierced, which I guess um, is, is an odd allocation of priorities, right? Like, but um, yeah, no, that was a really interesting component. I mean, there were even a few kids present at this, which I thought was really interesting. Um, there was also just like, I never know how much, like, I'm not going to say that I think at the national conservative type gatherings, you would encounter much more pronatalist Orban, Victor Orban love. And I didn't really encounter as much explicit endorsement of like public policy that would lead to sort of pronatalist outcomes at this type of thing. So much as I did notice this interesting strain of people sort of thinking like, hmm, in which ways have we societally erred? Uh, And it was also really interesting because then actually a few days later, once I got back to Texas, some of my New Yorker tech bro friends were visiting And we were talking about this guy's recent breakup. And he was saying that, you know, this girl was like super, super rich. Um, 
I hope he doesn't mind me sharing this. Uh, you know, she's super, super rich and she like won like four or five kids and this whole thing. And it was sort of interesting to me that this was like a commonly observed thing within their sort of SF New York tech world that like there's, it's almost like this interesting distribution where like super, super poor women sometimes want a lot of kids. You get sort of like middle-class, upper middle-class, you know, they want like one kid or two kids or maybe zero kids. And then you get to like the, the richest of the rich. And there's like a big emphasis, sort of this resurgence of energy surrounding like four or five kids, that type of thing. So I like had totally been yeah, aware of this. And I wonder whether you've observed this a little bit. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. It's weird. I mean, the, the very poor and the, and the very rich have two things in common. One, they both get lots of government subsidies. And two, they both have lots of kids. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the middle class gets screwed and it's basically sterile and unsubsidized. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I've, yeah, I could definitely feel that, I guess. Um, I mean, the whole birth rate conversation does vaguely feel like it's verging into like nationalist territory to worry about the great replacement and birth rate and this and that. But, you know, it is kind of true that the birth rate is low. Um, and like somehow you can't quite qualify society as a success if it doesn't reproduce itself somehow. Um, why, like why? Like go down that line of thinking for me a little bit. Cause I think this is something where you're a lot more compelled on this front than I am. Well, because if you saw some weird species of bird and you saw their numbers reducing and they're not on track to replace themselves, you kind of ask, you you kind of wonder like what's wrong, what's wrong in the ecosystem? Why is this like, if, if, if a species is getting close to being on the endangered species list, people ask questions. And when it comes to at least certain countries, that's going to be true. And why wouldn't we ask the question? Well, no, I guess, I guess what I'm curious about is like, like, you know, draw that line of thinking for me out a little bit more of like, why is it more desirable for people to have, you know, two kids or three kids than one kid or zero kids? Like why, to me, this seems like an interesting, um, maybe this is where my libertarianism sort of rubs up against my, my Christian leanings, where, you know, I can sort of see the Christian case for, for this idea that we are, you know, there are various relationships between God and man that are modeled in the human relationships that we have, like in spousal relationships or in parent-child relationships, this sense of incredible self-sacrifice and, and mutual subservience and all these different themes. So I see the Christian case for why this is valuable, but I fail to see or I struggle to see some of the like, why this is good for society overall type case. Um, I don't know. How do you, are there any things that have like really convinced you? Like, did you always think about it this way? Do you feel this way? Cause you have like a gazillion kids from a gazillion different baby mamas <laughs> or like, how well, I mean, there's, this? Do, you just, I, do you just want like a gazillion more? I mean, there's economic and utilitarian considerations that you can drum up, right? If you have an inverted population pyramid, by which I mean, you have less youth than you have old people as the EU is happening, is having, it's hard to, it's hard to maintain the social safety net. <laughs> Ew, right? down with the social safety net. <laughs> okay. Well, it says, Says, I am says sick the pro-life libertarian, but I am sick of taking care of old people with my tax dollars. People should have the kids that they want, and we should stop doling out social security to rich people who don't need it. <laughs> this conversation is going in so many ways, Liz. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, um, but but I would like to reiterate that you, in being true to your libertarian roots, did get both piercings and tattoos. At, at oh, the of course, of course. Uh, you were like three minutes late to my third piercing or whatever it was. And I was sort of wondering, like, you know, what's the appropriate number of piercings to get? But then it occurred to me that we could just have Radicon next year and I need to save some space on my body, you know? Jesus Christ. Okay, yeah. <laughs> All I remember is your ear was like this really angry red that entire day. Looked, <laughs> yeah, because you saw it after I'd gotten pierced like three minutes before. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't understand this this tendency for self, like body modification slash mortification that people have. I'm totally on board with the book of Leviticus. No tattoos, <laughs> no piercings, none of this weird pagan shit. Just completely <laughs> prohibitive. 
it's not pagan it's youthful there's a difference you sound like a dad over here um i know i, I sound like a dad yeah. yeah no but i i do think it, it was a it was altogether like a very interesting like i don't know it's very rare to have a, an event where you can have as many penthouse hot tubs um and various substances and completely open bar and piercings and tattoos provided and a few small children running around and a marriage that happens on a stage uh and like all these different things that were sort of percolating all at once i just found it to be um, very interesting. And I think the the really cool thing where Mike totally fulfilled his, his concept uh, and really brought it to fruition was that he really wanted this to be an almost like insulated, funhouse, cool, weird experience where instead of having too much about COVID policy or anything related to the pandemic, we're just relishing, our, you know, in our freedoms and our ability to just totally forget about that and to spend um, time and, and actually like, you know, he didn't want it to be this sort of uh, jerk off meditation on how sad it is to be canceled or how sad it is that the pandemic has right. ravaged our country or anything. It was much more of like, okay, well, now we've carved out the space to be free of all this shit. So instead of talking about how glad we are to not be wearing our masks, let's just do something interesting with our, our maskless freedom. Uh, and I think he did a really, really good job. Like that was clearly something that he approached, uh, he was so deliberate with his approach. And I think he did a really, really incredible job with that. I mean, I, I think it's actually kind of a testament to like the way that we could go in the future where it's like, yeah, we all slobbered all over each other. And yeah, some people contracted COVID. And from what we know thus far, it's like kind of just a cold for pretty much everybody that I've spoken to, um, you know, because everybody basically made their own decision related to their vaccination status and decided, you know, that it was worth it to come to this this party and, and hobnob with these interesting people. I'm going to use long COVID as an excuse for several months, at least. If I forget anything <laughs> or if I fuck up anything in, in a post or if I say something, if I tweet something dumb and I start getting canceled again, I'm absolutely going to throw COVID under the bus on this one. <laughs> um, although I have to say, I don't I don't really feel much in the way of long COVID sim- symptoms. Um, but uh, huh. Yeah. By the way, I should mention some of the we haven't mentioned some of the crazier sessions, right? There was like a UFO summoner dude. There mm-hmm. were some alien abduction stories. There was Cody Wilson, the guy from Ghost Gunner, who you know literally wants to make it rain AR-15s. Um, the, oh yeah, you know, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, t- yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> on board with that. Um, what else? There, there was some psychedelic thing that I didn't go to, but yeah, there was there was heretics of various flavors who were. I was were... getting tattooed during the in the same space as the psychedelic tea party, and that was really interesting. Um, you know, I was only like sort of half paying attention because I was you know paying attention to some degree to the pain. Uh, it wasn't really that bad though, but it was it was interesting to me. Like the they had a an older woman who was sort of making a lot of the case for this, and I thought it was just kind of cool the degree to which there was a little bit of like a demographic shakeup there in terms of who's advocating for more use of psychedelics, and frankly, even some like edgier psychedelics than I think the ones that we typically sort of focus on. We talk about you know trials related to like MDMA assisted therapy for veterans and stuff like that. And they were like talking about all kinds of stuff, really, really broadening that umbrella, which I thought was, you know, the right way. I like how you have like opinions on exotic psychedelics. Oh, of somehow, course. like the little acid shrooms level is just too basic. Like we're not. Well, acid whole is always acid is always a wild idea, but you know, like a wild time. But no, I mean, one of the biggest things. This is actually just a pet peeve by nature of living in New York and Austin. If I have to hear another person talk about their ayahuasca experience as if they're not all the same, like, like everybody, it's just sort of like telling people about your dreams. Like, okay, you had this really interesting dream, but it's really only interesting to you. And I am just so sick of ayahuasca related discourse because I feel as though people struggle <laughs> to convey the actual like realizations that they have. They, they struggle 
they get so focused on the details and I think they struggle to synthesize it into like a clear specific takeaway. And I don't really want to hear all about like the, all the different things that got them to that point. I'm sort of interested in what is the specific takeaway and like, you know, the degree to which ayahuasca was essential in, in gleaning that. And I just feel like I'm constantly hearing about people's fucking Peruvian expeditions. I don't give a shit. I wasn't aware there were, there, there is ayahuasca discourse, Liz, but thank you. Oh, oh, absolutely. I think maybe it's just my social circles, but you know, it, it's just a matter of time. You'll get into ayahuasca discourse at some point. Jesus. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I guess the last thing that's kind of worth going into. So, you know, the conference kind of ended after a couple of days and there was that breakfast and everyone kind of split up and, and the dream, the reverie was over, right? The weird, like burning man, but with flush toilets inside an art deco hotel was, was over. Um, and then I, like an idiot thought, Oh, I'll just spend the extra day. Cause there's an extra hotel day. I'm not going to get sick or whatever. I'll just stick around. And of course I get hit on Friday and then hit by like a ton of bricks on Saturday. Can't get on a plane. And so I'm like stuck there. I'm like in a holding pattern. And so I, the Miami beach just cannot be handled inside of COVID days. And so I moved to Midtown, which for those who aren't familiar with Miami, it's kind of one of the trendy neighborhoods, kind of close to Wynwood between the design district and Wynwood. Wynwood being kind of like the rebooted Soma in, in Miami. And it's, it's amazing to me. I don't know. You probably didn't spend a lot of time outside of the hotel. I'm guessing Liz. No, I went to Wynwood. I went to design district. I spent a decent amount of time there. I went to a little Havana. I actually explored Miami a decent, a decent bit, mostly because of my pursuit of Cortaditos, which was vociferous and intense. And my husband fully shared in this with me. We were very excited about the food. I thought you drove to the Keys like the day after the conference. Or, yeah, or we did. And then we came back to Miami. We basically like lived our best Florida lives. We, I drunkenly bought a bunch of Let's Go Brandon uh, bumper stickers. And now <laughs> I just have this entire pile sitting in my house. And like they're aesthetically terrible and not actually really something that I believe. So I just have nothing to do with them. So yeah, I mean, I had a really good time. Like I was fully hoodwinked by, by Florida in a delightful way. You know, those are a felony to own in California, by the way. Let's go <laughs> Um, that's not true. Actually, for all I know, it is true. Um, interesting. Yeah, no, I, I hung around Miami and even in my COVID days, it was just amazing. Miami, everyone in Miami is so positive and chatty and warm and so over the sort of tizzy of just stagnation that I think a lot of the rest of the country is in. And the sort of, I don't know, the just hyster- the hysterical shit show that is California and its various manifestations, whether it's the school district, city governance, the COVID fiasco, whatever. It's just, you just don't feel it at all. It's like, you just get there. It's, it's as if it's a different planet with like a different timeline. And I can see what people get seduced by that, where they land and it's like, oh man, another world is possible. Um, yeah, that was, yeah. Yeah. I completely, was, yeah. I completely agree. I mean, the thing that was really interesting to me is just like the degree to which in, I think to some degree, culturally in New York, having glimpsed it throughout uh, an awful lot of the pandemic, um, it's been really interesting the degree to which now it feels like there's sort of for better or worse, in my view, sort of for worse, some amount of social code surrounding COVID restrictions where you basically show your vaccine passport at the door of any, you know, concert venue, any restaurant, any bar, whatever. And once you're in it, there's sort of this, like, I guess, a, a sense of release or breathing easily because you know that everybody else is vaccinated, which, you know, I, I reject the practice. I disagree with it. I think it's, you know, the, the wrong way of approaching this. And I don't think we should have to prove our vaccination status. But for better or worse, that is the sort of cultural norm that has been established over the course of the pandemic in New York. And I was really surprised by how, you know, that I think leads to some amount of, of cultural like looseness and freedom that has been restored in New York. But in Miami, it felt like that in spades, like to such a greater degree in a manner that I found very intoxicating. Right. Right, right. I imagine. I'm surprised you even like concede to this vaccine 
passport thing. You don't like throw a total scene and, you know, I don't know, every time you have to comply, but it sounds like you, you go along. I mean, I, I like to go to fine restaurants and go to nice cocktail bars with my friends. And I am pretty sure I would lose all of my friends in New York if I became that guy. Um, who, you know, whips out my don't tread on me flag. And I'm like, yeah, this is, is this a good enough vaccine passport? Like, I mean, there's a a certain amount of etiquette and I always struggle with the balance between like, what's, how much of a stand should you take against things that are, you know, immoral and unjust uh, and just bad public policy versus, you know, what's the etiquette where, especially like the people who you're going to be hectoring about this policy or just the enforcers, they don't really have any bearing over whether, you know, de Blasio makes a vaccine mandate for children or whatever. Like I, I reject all of it, but I'm I'm not totally sure that like the costs to to me and what I would miss out on in terms of social life would be uh, worth it or even that it would be that effective as sort of like a, a matter of protest. So, but I also hate you- protesters. So there's that. Like, I mean, I respect their rights, but like I'm not a protestory type of person. Oh, oh, OK. Interesting. I was about to say, like, do you actually carry like a Gadsden flag and like a Cato Institute <laughs> copy of the constitution around. And whenever you get challenged, you literally just whip out the fucking constitution <laughs> and the flag. Yeah. I have one of those like doormats at my house. that's like, come back with a search warrant. The only problem is then it like invites them to come back with a search warrant. Like, no, don't ever bring a search warrant in my house. You'll find crazy stuff. Don't do it. Man. Yeah, let's, let's not even go there. Liz. <laughs> Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, that was more or less my reflection on it. Again, in retrospect, it was sort of, it's its bizarre. Again, it, like, it was magical at the time, and now it's, like, already fading into ri- in the rearview mirror. And it's kind of weird what to make sense, you know, how to make sense of it. I hope he does it I, again. It was Oh, absolutely. Cool. I felt like yeah. a shroomsy sort of, like, afterglow for right. days after this. I don't know whether you felt the same way, where it's sort of, I guess, like, how people feel when they leave summer camp. Where there's just right. a little bit of a sense of like, oh, I want to like text all my camp friends and like, you know, tell everybody about all the new friends I made and like all the cool things we did together. And like, you know, trying, I'm like trying to tell my husband all these like inside jokes and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, enough. Um, but I definitely felt like it, it had, I think magical is a good way of describing it, which all sounds like we're just like overhyping it and we're to get Peter Thiel to invite us back. Um, but there was legitimately, I think, something really, really like liberatory and freeing and interesting about it. Yeah, and I, and I kind of wonder, again, it's, it's so bizarre, like so many of these people are, you know, relatively big online, right? And in some sense, form like a counter narrative to like the existing media cathedral or user catch all term, right? And I wonder, what will become of it, right? Because there's, there's been moments of like, intellectual, political and cultural ferment in the past, right? And sometimes it's kind of blown over. Sometimes it actually has coalesced into radical change. I mean, one thinks of like, Trotsky scheming and fuming in a Viennese cafe, <laughs> right? Um, in the in the teens, which became you know world communism, um, or or you know less menacingly, you think about the American intellectual hangout in Paris in the thirties, Hemingway and others. Um, anyhow, this sounds very self flattering, but it, it's clear that there's something that's outside of the mainstream media discourse that kind of has legs. People are definitely thirsty for other voices, right? I mean, again, you can cite big names like Rogan or, or other smaller names. Um, I just wonder where this goes from here and how, yeah, what happens when the, when the pirates become the Navy or the heretics actually become the priests? Like if, if, you know, the continuing sort of deconstruction of reality and institutions and faith and consensus and all that continues, what are we left with? You know, it did, it did feel like there is a significant constituency for an Overton window broadening 
And it sucks because like the, you know, it's, we all face some amount of social consequence or career consequence for discussing ideas that people consider to be heresy. But this was heartening in the sense of like, I mean, fundamentally, my colleague, Matt Welch, uh, you know, always gives me the really, really good advice with Twitter, where it's, he's just like, hey, Liz, like, A, the answer is never tweet, like, enough of this bullshit. And, and, and B, sometimes the answer is just as simple as, like, fuck off. You know, for so many of the, the naysayers and the people who are attempting to, to stifle discourse, like, so much of the answer is just, like, a ginormous middle finger in their direction. And I think this was reassuring in terms of like bolstering that thesis because it's like no there really is a constituency out there for people who are just interested in like discussing and mulling and ruminating on the diana fleischman talk like there were interesting points presented and i am richer and better for it and like screw you if you if you don't feel that way and screw you if you're going to try to erase that from the types of things that we can talk about in this society right Right. I mean, it does seem like the cancel mobs to some degree, and maybe I'm deceiving myself or maybe I just block a lot of people on Twitter. Um, just don't ex- like, you know, the tech journalists who who cares what they're right. Like, I, don't, I can't even think of the last conventional tech journalism piece I've actually read or even story that kind of broke through the noise. And, you know, yeah, it just doesn't seem like there's much to really fear. It does seem like the over into window has broadened to some degree. Um I think it's honestly, I think it's one of the potentially positive effects of the pandemic. I think there's been this really interesting, like political axis shakeup where people who had formerly considered themselves, you know, super like loyal to the state, like homosexual, um, you know, classic liberals have really had a lot of their confidence in the state shaken um, and not just confidence in the state, but also confidence in their tribe. I think a lot of people sort of are, you know, they're. I think people can see this really interesting dynamic that's going on where we are bending to the hypercautious in a lot of areas. Um, and, you know, right. the hypercautious about the types of things we can say, the hypercautious about, uh, you know, what, when we wear masks and for how long, the hypercautious in all these areas of life, we've really ceded so much ground to them. And I think people are really experiencing the firsthand effects of that. And after a few years of it are kind of saying, eh, no more. This isn't a better way of living. This isn't a good way to live. Yeah, no, I think the egg on the face of the sort of elite cathedral, whether it be in the case of Afghanistan, COVID, or the current presidency, which seems to be one of the least popular administrations in recent in modern American history. Um, and, and given the fact that the, tra- the specter of Trump has sort of receded a little bit, right, such that mm-hmm. everyone doesn't feel like they have to be hashtag resist all the time as if, you know, we actually were resisting the Nazis or something, um, I guess maybe reduces the stakes to some degree. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's it, we, it. I don't know if we're verging on a precipice, but it does seem like we're an inflection point to history to some degree. Um, I, so, as a random comment, I talked to the Prospera guy, the guy who's like starting a charter. Oh, Island he's thing. so interesting. He yeah, is. yeah. I didn't. I didn't get his talk, but in that after party thing in that penthouse where you were in the hot tub, I was talking <laughs> to the Eric guy who had flown That's in from part. An Prospera evergreen sentence that can be applied to all types of situations. But go go ahead. <laughs> I, I mean, I think Liz and the Hot Tub Bros sounds like an '80s band that you know, <laughs> had like a one hit. Um, so you and you're in your Hot Tub Bros. I was talking to to Eric, and it's fascinating how he's creating not just that product. He's what he calls it is an operating system for a city, like a set of principles, a set of laws, like actual technology sitting around, like basically a playbook to actually create not just one Prospera but potentially a hundred of them. And obviously, he's a startup entrepreneur, so he's kind of talking his book. But but it was interesting to see that he really was trying to make it such that we funded cities, which we, which we have in the past, of course, right? Like we had the Hanseatic League, we had the, the Northern Italian Republics during the 1400s. So, you know, there's, there's precedence for this sort of um, 
with this sort of thing, but it's, um, yeah, it's intriguing. I, it just, it's bizarre. It's, I think everyone understands that we're in a sort of, you know, limping decadent order, right? And it's not quite clear what is straining to be born at the moment, if anything. Um, and meanwhile, the billionaires are, are trolling each other on Twitter busily, but um, <laughs> yeah. yeah okay, I think I'll, it'll be interesting yeah. to see sort of like, not only like that type of, trend but I, I mean it seems like so many people are sort of like flying like centering honing in on this type of thing i mean balaji shanavasan seems to be pretty into this there's a lot of like dao like decentralized autonomous collective yeah. or organization talk about like what are ways that groups of people can can structure themselves um in in just different ways that sort of like shirk state power to some degree and like what does this look like in the future and it's it's very hard to envision i think it's hard for people to take that leap but it's an interesting and sort of like hopeful time in terms of thinking like, man, like where do we go from here? Like what, it seems like there's a lot of people interested in this idea of like balkanization and like, what is the form that that takes? We don't really know yet. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's a, it's an alarming bandwagon and an increasingly common one, but yeah, no, I'm kind of on it in the sense that <laughs> um, it's, it's odd because Balji and I have chatted a lot. In fact, he's been on the show at least three times and um you know, it's funny as like, as more and more time goes on, Balaji, as wild as he is, gets more and more right, right? And like, the, the, the writer Balaji is like the more alarmed I am. And, um, <laughs> it, it, you know, and like, yeah, I mean, a lot of what he says, I, I still think is a little bit wild, but um, we're all yeah. living in Balaji's um, like simulation. And there's like, no, there's no getting out of it, right? Like, this is like a being John Malkovich situation. But like, right. yeah, there's, there's no end. Yeah, man. Okay, well, that's that's a great realization on a sunny on a sunny afternoon in Petaluma, California. But um, okay, let me. I think. Oh, we had a. If anyone has to ask questions, by all means, come up to the callers queue. We we had somebody, but they they bailed. Um, I don't know if they're gonna ask us. Anyone's gonna ask us more questions. Typically, we at least get three or four. Um, but uh, usually the the you know the shows are slightly less rambly and wide raging than this. There's usually like, a specific <laughs> book or topic. Um, we can but, easily uh, do another one and we can drill down into like libertarian philosophy or like religion or abortion or whatever type of thing you want to talk about. But I do think the little hereticon debrief is kind of fun because we can just sort of like crystallize our, our afterglows for all posterity, which is kind of fun. You know, it's surprising that so f- very little has come out of hereticon. I mean, Mike Solana posted like one r- relatively brief review, but other than that, like I haven't seen anyone actually post anything about it well i think that's i think that's partially because we're like to some degree sworn to secrecy (laughs) that's also true yeah the chatham house rules make it difficult um yeah huh well i hope he does it again like yeah i mean that's one of the problems with you know analog in real life events right there's there's no record of it which seems which seems radical in and of itself the fact that there isn't like a shareable record of it that that comes out of it it's it's nothing a set of memories and nothing else but um (laughs) Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, Liz, good, good chatting. Thank you for doing this on what's probably the pub crawl hour in Austin. Um, <laughs> yeah, no problem. Oh, do we have, do we have a few questions or? Do we? Oh, shit, we do. Yo, yeah. Jeff reappeared again. Let me, hold on. Yeah, let me, oh, yeah. hold on. Take Let's take like one or two questions, then I'll, I'll yeah. take out. Jeff, you're on. And I've, and I've been able to unmute myself without getting myself out of the queue. So uh, very simple and quick question. So for those that aren't among the, say, celebrities that are invited to Hereticon, is there a path in? I understand there's a lot of secrecy and sworn to secrecy. Can't really share what happened there, and there's not a lot of people posting. 
But uh, for next year, you know, is there any best practice for people that aren't you to get in? I mean, I'm not even sure how I got in other than, um, I guess, a little Apple drama last year and then knowing Mike Talana. I, I don't I don't know. It, it's, it, it, I don't know. Do you know this? I mean, it, it's definitely uh, it's a weird I mean, there's also a number of people that I would consider that would be our peers that who weren't there. And I don't know if that's they didn't get an invite or just decided not to go. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Liz, do, you, do you know? I mean, I have no idea. I have more imposter syndrome than anybody else. Like, I have no idea. I'm like relatively small time and young and sort of just like vaguely tech beat interested. Um, and, and I write on it a little bit, but, you know, just sort of getting my feet wet a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I have no idea. I think it's uh, to a degree like who Mike likes, <laughs> like who Mike's buddies with. Gotcha. Which yeah. is sort of an unsatisfying like answer, but I mean, it was sort of like a a very like island of misfit toys, but like in a fun and cool way type vibe. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how how Mike's brain works, but it's wonderful. It's a it's a beautiful mess. Well, um, here's the following question to that: uh, If someone were to figure out where, like, which Art Deco hotel <laughs> in Miami, for instance, like. Was there such high security where nobody could get into the hotel or? Yeah. Okay. Got it. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty, I mean, I like, yeah, it was pretty like well, well secured. I think. What do you, what did you think Antonio? Uh, there were a lot of big beefy dudes who were probably armed. Uh, <laughs> around, and that's because um, a number of the people who were there, kind of roll with those dudes and so if you've got several of them in one place those dudes come along and so i mean i i, I it wasn't like a high security environment yeah, yeah. I, it was subtly yeah, done it, yeah it was subtly done but it was definitely there you can tell mm-hmm. yeah i think i think everybody in this channel listening to this right now uh, probably fancy themselves a bit of heretics and love uh, off-brand thinking so it's uh, that was the reason for the question appreciate the answers yeah, absolutely. But just I to mean, be clear, like, no, it's not like everybody was some like super celebrity or anything. Like, a, a yeah, lot of people were just were some like I met people who I, I didn't even recognize. But you know, there were at some there were always some bizarre intersection of something kind of cool in the world, and then potentially some tech entrepreneurship side of it. I don't know. It was it was an offbeat thing. I I don't want it to make it sound like it was like a lifestyles of the rich and famous type thing. I, <laughs> most people there were not. I don't think most people were even blue checks. Like. It was just, it was, it was a lot of offbeat characters. It wasn't yeah. necessarily famous people per se. It Don't was Carly just, Quast it was weirdos. <laughs> Who was there? Carly Quast, the supermodel, just for Grimes's set. Oh, I didn't even and, know that. I, yeah. Oh. God, she's so gorgeous in person. Oh my goodness. I was, you know, stunned. But yeah, I mean, it's like legitimately like, uh, it was an interesting sort of like, bunch and not just like i don't know some like i mean i have no idea why i was allowed to attend or invited um but i do think like sort of the diversity of characters present really made it quite interesting and it was also it was pretty small it was intimate in a way that i didn't expect oh so small less than a thousand people sort of small yeah Yeah, definitely less than a thousand okay antonio how much how many do you think it was my rough estimate was like three to four hundred yeah, I think I think I heard the number of the official cap was 300, I think. Okay, yeah, it felt that way too, where it's like you're seeing the same people over and over again and like really able to circulate and get into like repeat conversations with people in a way that was really fun, but you never ran out of people to speak with. Yeah, and that, you know, and that makes it hard to scale, right? Cuz it's not quite Dunbar's number, it's higher than Dunbar's number, but yeah. it's it's still not thousands. But I don't know, you could do it 
you could do it by region. Like I can imagine like a European version of Eroticon that would probably function or something. I don't know. I'm sure. I don't know if Mike has any aspirations in that regard. Um, cause he has like a full on day job aside from this, but, um, I could see, so I could see other versions of Hereticon happening that are maybe open, open the field a little bit, but I, I have no idea what's next for, for Mike. I'm, I'm guessing he's probably still just recovering from the stress. I know he got COVID right before it. I know he was just recovering from the, the stress of, of all that. Um, so yeah. yeah. Cool. In a sense, it was Mike's big, like delightful party. And right. that's kind of like the, it was very much like the mood of it. It felt both so masterfully done and so like experimental in a cool way. And so it's even hard for me to like consider what this would look like five years down the line or whatever, because it would just sort of potentially not have the same energy. Like one of the things that I think people really kept reacting to was like, holy crap, this is way better than any other type of like conferency event that we've ever been to. And so I wonder whether that sheen would wear off or whether there would be ways to continue to um, expand on it and improve it in future years. Like, I just have no idea what that looks like, but there was definitely a, like a newness element that was really fun and exciting. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to finish with a final question, get off the stage, let you go about your day. Um, I just had a very uh, specific question about how much was China discussed at Hereticon? Uh, connections to COVID, foreign policy, you know, strategic adversary of the United States, the, the any Teal of those Cowan, sort of topics. Yeah, the, the Teal Cowan um, discussion touched on China and pandemic policy a little bit. Uh, and I found that to be pretty interesting and enlightening. And then I think we talked about this a little bit in a private conversation that you and I, Antonio, had with Teal. Um, but... It was honestly not as present uh, as a topic of discussion as I was expecting. Yeah, they, you know, they didn't they didn't have a lot of politics in the conventional sense of politics of like geopolitics or, or domestic or international politics. Like, you know, the Biden administration wasn't discussed. China wasn't discussed. The situation in the Ukraine was not discussed. You know, a, a lot of things that typically would headline this sort of thinking persons conference weren't mentioned. And I'm not sure if that's intentional or Solana just didn't maybe want to politicize things, but it felt uh, intentional to me. And I think yeah. it's like, actually, now that you mentioned it, like, I don't remember hearing the word Biden or the right. name Biden over the course right. of this entire, like four day period, which is kind of fascinating. Like I would log back onto Slack and I would be like, oh, like what's happening in like a newsroom and in the political world. But then I would, right. you know, log off of Slack and like, I would just not hear the name Biden for days, which was honestly cathartic and lovely. <laughs> right. It definitely felt as, like an escapist sort of, thing (laughs) a lot of the 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 more ugly topics of the world were not discussed but covid was was discussed that that was definitely discussed Um, yeah it was a little bit more like um instead of sort of like all of us would have the same i think or not the same a a lot of us would have similar critiques as to the things that are going wrong and the specific ways in which they are going wrong in the world of politics and i think the thing that was especially interesting about this was that it felt like a more almost like a sandbox to uh, instead articulate like a clearer vision for where we go from here and what that could look like, as opposed to doing the same, you know, round critique over and over again as to what's currently going wrong. Yeah. Although, I mean, some of this is probably creditable to just like tech by and large, just not get involved in politics, you know, unless it can help it. And so I think, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, the spirit of Huracan wasn't totally out of step with the spirit of Silicon Valley, whereby you, you don't, unlike say in New York or DC, where that is like, again, prime time conversation, you don't talk about politics by and large. Um, unless you have to, because, you know, the presumption is you're beyond politics in some way, which of course you're not, but, um, yeah. 
Anyhow, okay, we've been going on for more than an hour, Liz. Is there anything else you, you, you want to mention about um, Reticon? No, just that I would absolutely love to to go back to it again and to get like a gazillion more piercings, um, especially to watch your your abject horror at the number of piercings I got. That was and tattoos. Fun. The number of tattoos. Is just, <laughs> just, uh, anyhow, um, yeah, and then I got the last thing I mentioned is that now. Like the total don't give a fuck of COVID now is incredible. Like after you've had COVID, it's like you don't care. <laughs> You're just like look mask. I like I literally want to lick this fucking doorknob and kiss this strange. Like I don't care anymore. That's it. Bring it, COVID. So I um, had that exact same experience. I had COVID like four or five weeks ago, and it's just like immediately after that, I was just like, yeah, this is utter bullshit. I'm gonna like go back to smoking cigarettes. Like it is my time to live. This is enough of this. You know, I feel strengthened by the experience. Um. Well, yeah, and I think that's going to be a common emotion as as Omicron, which is already over its peak, by the way, you know, has hit most people. I think that's going to be an increasingly common experience of like, yeah, not so sure it's worth pausing life for like this crap. Um, so um, also the, the Dems are going to get a shellacking in the midterms and they have to turn to COVID off. So, um, yeah, um, interesting. OK, Liz, well, thanks for chatting. I, I won't keep you from your Shiner box anymore. <laughs> you enjoy on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to get back on the road and, and finally go back to my house in the high desert, which I haven't been to in two weeks, and say hi to my cat, which hasn't seen me in two weeks. Um, so. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll chat more soon. Okay. See you, Liz. Bye. Later. Bye. Bye.